I knew we were at the precipice of a mass mobilization. This is Max Rameau, strategist, theorist, author, and organizer with Pan-African Community Action, and you are listening to The Next World, a podcast about building movements. Once a month on this show, we will explore and celebrate the work of poor people's movements, particularly in the U.S. We will highlight innovative and powerful organizing campaigns and community building led by women, LGBTQ folks, black communities, and other people of color that are pushing the boundaries and have the potential to transform this society. Today on the show, we're focusing on the question of how movement organizations engage in community control over police campaigns. Our guest today is M. Adams, a community organizer and co-executive director of Freedom Inc., based in Madison, Wisconsin. M. Adams, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about Freedom Inc. So Freedom Inc. is out of Madison, Wisconsin, mid-sized city in the Midwest, uh, and but does a lot, a lot of work there. Can you tell me a little bit about Freedom Inc. and particularly about the composition uh, of the organization out there in a city that is overwhelmingly white, a lot of uh, white people in Madison, a lot of people eating cheese in Madison. Uh, <laughs> what kind of work do you do there and what is the composition of the organization? Mm-hmm. So Freedom Inc. is an organization, as you said, based in Madison, Wisconsin, with the mission and a vision around ending violence, all different types of violence um, against low-income communities of color. We focus on Black and Southeast Asian communities. The majority of the base are um, descendants of Africans enslaved here in the U.S., um, but we serve all and, and work with all different types of Black communities. So we have some Black Latinx communities as well as some Black immigrant folks and refugee folks from uh, the continent of Africa. And we work with Hmong and Cambodian people within the Southeast Asian population. And as you mentioned, Madison is fairly white. It is very white, very, very white. It is, uh, I think the last time I checked, it was somewhere between 85 to 88% white, um, to give you a sense of what it is. It's a very, very white place. And it would, it's about 6% Black and maybe 3% Asian. And that includes the university population, which is a, you know, a huge chunk of the population. As you mentioned, Madison is mid-sized. So it's about, uh, I would say, let's call it a quarter of a million, 250,000, and maybe 40 to 50,000 of those folks are uh, university affiliated. Actually, probably closer to 60, if you consider all the staffing as well. Um, and so the university is a, a sizable chunk. And Freedom Inc. formed actually began as a Southeast Asian organization. So it, at the inception of it, it wasn't designed to be both Black and Southeast Asian. Our founder, Kaj Wava, was actually uh, politicizing young people that lived where she lived. So she got a chance to go to school. She got a chance to learn all these different things. And each week she would come home and she would politicize the young people who lived there, teaching them a variety of different things. And it was really successful. The young people really took to it. And so the program uh, expanded to other parts of the city. And at the time, it was actually called Asian Freedom Project. And when it went to one of the particular neighborhoods of Madison, the north side, it is uh, Southeast Asians who live there, but also Black people who live there. And the Black girls saw that the Hmong girls were meeting and were like, look, we want to come to the program. We want to be a part of it. And so they joined. Um, and it was a disaster. <laughs> it was a flat out disaster. It was a disaster for a number of reasons. And so some of it is maybe the stuff you'd guess, which is like language barriers. And some of the girls in that program, they were directly themselves refugees. And so they still predominantly spoke Hmong and had limited uh, language and limited English language speaking skills at the time. But that actually wasn't the hardest part. You know, we can figure out how to translate. We can figure out 
how to teach people different ways to communicate. The toughest part was how differently they understood the same root issue. So if we were talking about militarization, for example, the Hmong folks would be talking about being a descendant or being uh, their family members being refugees because of what we call the Vietnam War here, but is actually the American War. And the black girls in Vietnam, they don't call it the Vietnam War. They call it the American War. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And there's even there's the American War, but it's even an aspect that Hmong people in particular experience called the Secret War, which is about how the United States violently treated uh, Hmong people in Laos to force them to fight into the war. They did not volunteer. They didn't want to do it. The United States began to bomb their land, destroy their rice fields, forcing them out of the mountains where they were living and to come down and have to fight in the war with them. So that part of it is called the secret war of the American war. But yeah, so, and the Black girls would be talking about uh, possibly joining ROTC or the military after they graduated high school because they didn't think that there were a lot of opportunities available to them. And so they have it the same root issue, militarism, but how they experienced it was so different that we knew at that time that the way to actually build a shared movement wasn't to act like people weren't different. I think that's the mistake that many organizations and movements make is to act as though we're all in this melting pot and we should just all be the same and all get along. So that kumbaya thing but instead we said, no, let's actually give space so that each of these respective groups can explore the unique ways that they're impacted, right? We don't, it is our assessment that both black girls and Hmong girls don't get enough space to develop politically and aren't resource to develop politically to talk about their own uniquenesses and let alone do it with other people. And so instead of act, instead of skipping that step, we knew that that step was crucial to building the broader we. And once we did that, really created those separate spaces, that was when we were able to come together and build a shared analysis around the root issues that were impacting our communities. So that's fascinating the way that the two different communities living in the same neighborhood uh, really saw militarization from, from, I guess, in a certain kind of way, two different sides of the gun, one holding the gun, even though not in charge of it, and the other one at the, uh, uh, at the end of the gun. So uh, I guess one of the uh, challenges, too, would be how to overcome uh, how to overcome that. Moving to another area, related area, I think uh, in terms of what they did have in common, one other thing that you mentioned is that even though their experiences were wildly different, something that was recognized quickly was that you had young uh, Black women and young Southeast Asian women who did not have access to certain types of information or who did not have access to time and space to think things through. And to, So is that... so? In, to the extent that militarism was something that uh, the two groups saw from opposite sides, was patriarchy, was the denial of space and time and rights to, as well as capitalism, uh, to, to low-income uh, Southeast Asian and Black girls or women in particular, was that something that the groups were able to, I guess, have in common or think about in the same way? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because uh, the answer, yeah, that's, that's interesting because that was one of the reasons why we thought that the group could be together. We thought the group could be together because these are both young, they were girls. I mean, and I'm talking about maybe middle school age. They were, you know, still fairly, still fairly young. Um, and some of them even probably upper elementary age. Um, we thought that that would be, that that could be enough. But what we also discovered is 
they were even experiencing that different. So even how uh, the Hmong or the Southeast Asian girls were talking about the way patriarchy showed up and looked in their particular context, looked different enough to the black girls that they could recognize it, somewhat situate themselves in it, but felt that it was so different that they needed to talk about it differently. But they could both recognize that they were treated different than their brothers, for example. Or they could both recognize that the man is supposed to be or told to be the head of the household. So those particular things, they they could see enough. Um, but some of the other ways and nuances nuances were different enough that they couldn't fully identify with one another. Hmm. So here's, uh, I guess, a difference that's a little more, uh, I want to be delicate about the go around this because it, it really is a bit stereotypical. Uh, but I think the stereotype that uh, some of us have is that uh, the culture of black communities is more out there and loud and uh, in your face in a kind of way. Uh, and uh, the culture of some Southeast Asian communities is a little more uh, giving space or giving deference to people in authority in terms of uh, certainly something you hear said about uh the way black people, the way we talk uh, with each other is very animated and a lot of hand movements and talking with the body. Uh, but I don't think you hear that, again, in a stereotypical kind of way about Southeast Asia. Was that kind of cultural uh, divide also something that uh, presented either a challenge or was it a great stepping stone or did it matter at all? Yeah, there were definitely differences in cultural, like the cultural ways that people communicated you know we talked about and, and we still talk about it right like we haven't uh you know completely solved it and in fact every time we go out and create recruit more members into the base we have to reintroduce the conversation and have it all over again i mean that was definitely a thing right some of the the our black members were very direct communicators and very forward <laughs> you know, using their, using their words, we'll say, um, to communicate particular ideas or even being comfortable to challenge and call things to question um, was a bit different, where some of our Southeast Asian folks did not call things to question the same way um, and were not as direct in, in raising issues. And I remember one of the things that I had to learn was that silence was not agreement, you know, and so mm. I'm used to being in a meeting style where People are talking too much when you got to be like, be quiet. (laughs) We're trying to move on. I heard you. Uh, And then being in a meeting space very different where people were not verbally disagreeing, where in fact, it would look like, you know, if you were not familiar with that cultural form of communication, it may look like that people were agreeing. Mm. Um, And so I I had to learn. I had to learn very much about that uh, way of communicating. And I still am learning. And similarly, they're still learning. From us. And you know what's been uh, pretty cool is that we've learned from one another. We've learned to see uh, the beautiful thing. And that's the thing about the stereotypes, right? The stereotypes exaggerate what people perceive to be negative. And what what we did do was learn to see what was beautiful and learn how to integrate it into the things that we were doing. So we you know, start starting off, we may have said, I may have said, oh, that is a passive way of communicating, but I had to learn to see things different to, to understand that there was a different form of communication and to no, no longer call it passive, hmm. for example. So what is the organizing lesson here then? Is the organizing lesson that uh, you should not have one organization with two different 
uh, cultures in it or two different maybe classes this wasn't a class situation but just to, to extrapolate that out a bit is it is the organizing lesson that we shouldn't have two different cultures in one organization or is the organizing lesson that we should uh, do that in type of the or is there a different organizing lesson so I would say that a few of the lessons that pop out to me is one you cannot effectively organize across communities unless each community is building its own respective power that to try to just build, yeah, so it's like, you know, into the coalition politics or the coalition theories. But we were not, we would have not been able to do what we have done as a Black and Southeast Asian organization if we saw ourselves just as a people of color group. And then anybody, everybody in here is the same and any and everybody's issue is the same and how we organize it around it is the same. That would have actually been backward. I think at first it would have made everybody feel good, but it was certainly, I think, softened our politics and it would have made it so that we actually really weren't building solidarity because here's the thing we're not all impacted by everything the same right and so we shouldn't be walking around here and acting like we are we're not all experiencing issues the same way uh, we're not all given the same opportunities we're not level like we're not positioned the same across every single thing and that's in regards to gender racial, ethnic status, socioeconomic status, et cetera. And it actually makes us stronger and sharper to understand those differences, build power within that, and then come together. Mm. That, I think, is the real lesson. You were able then to take some of these lessons and some of these practices and build it out to a pretty significant uh, organization there in a really small uh, city, When you small compared to Chicago or New York or, uh, or L.A. and those places, but a mid-sized city anyhow. Let's talk a little bit about one of your campaigns, the No Cops in School campaigns, uh, where Freedom Inc. fought to end the contract that paid Madison police to be at schools, at public schools inside of uh, uh, Madison, Wisconsin. So what was that campaign about? Uh, and uh, uh, what were your demands and what was your organizing strategy? Mm-hmm. So there are some core ideological tenets of the organization that we, through each campaign that we're involved in, that we're seeking to advance. And some of those things, two of those things that are really relevant here is one is that we're a feminist organization, which means we're constantly thinking about how to defeat patriarchy, how to abolish patriarchal violence and patriarchal institutions, and how to um, increase access, promote the, the living and dignity, et cetera, of women and girls, queer, trans, intersex folks. And I think that that's important to stand because how we came into this question of fighting against police violence had to do with our work steeped in gender justice work, right? So we understand, we have the analysis that policing is a form, is an expression of patriarchal violence and does create gender-based violence. So as people who fundamentally believe in women and girls, queer, trans, intersex folks living um, free of violence, having the having bodily autonomy, being able to determine what our relationships, interactions, and so on and so forth would be like, we have to be diametrically opposed to policing. So I I think that that's important to understand. The other, one of the other political things that we're constantly trying to advance in our work is community control, which has to do with our analysis of understanding that our communities are fundamentally without power due to the colonial structures of white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism and their combined forces against us and our communities. And because of that, we approach every single issue we're facing 
with those ideological underpinnings with us. So in 2014, Michael Brown was assassinated by police, you know, because of police terror, murdered by Dan Wilson, police officer in Ferguson. In Ferguson, and, Missouri. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so we joined the rebellions happening across the country and really around the world. And so we began to organize a campaign. We had a citywide campaign around uh, Michael Brown. And then also there was a police murder that happened in Madison, Wisconsin, against a young teenage boy, uh, Tony Robinson. And, there, and then there were other uh, instances of police terror, police violence against Black women that really had to do with incarcerating Black women who were surviving domestic violence or intimate partner violence. And so we had this campaign that had been organizing around Black communities having power over policing apparatuses, which is really around Black people having democratic control over the armed wing of the state and being able to self-determine around safety. So while we were doing that work, our young people who were actively engaged in that campaign, they answered the call within their specific sector and the call of the campaigns. And I think of any real meaningful movement work is to ask or to position um, or proposition the people involved in the work to say, well, now what will you do with it? And they answered. They said, we're going to fight to have control, community control over policing as it relates to schools. And they did. And so they developed a campaign, which is now called our Police Free Schools campaign, that has three demands that we think answers or reflects some of our ideological underpinnings. And one of them is around removing police actually from the schools, which meant that we had to cancel the contract because in Madison they were there because the city was, you know, because uh, the school board, the school district was paying the contract for them to be staffing the school. And and just just to be to be clear, as we continue down this path, we hear we've heard a lot recently in 2020, certainly uh, about defund the police. So talking about removing or ending the contract, defunding the contract with the Madison police. When did this campaign start, even though you didn't use the words defund at that time? When did this campaign start? The police free schools campaign began four years ago. So this was so, way ahead of the curve in terms of these types of campaigns, even though they're they're really they're picking up steam right now. This was four years ago. This is twenty sixteen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the young people were so the young people were answering the call and they're saying, yeah, we see this happening in the broader community, but the way that it's happening with us is inside of our schools that we're forced to go to every day. So we want to wage a campaign around here. Exactly. So it was uh, removing police from schools by canceling the contract. The second demand, which we won, by the way, victory. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> don't, don't skip ahead of the program, Em. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of the demands. The second demand was investing in Black youth and youth of color. Um, so this has to do with, and to your point, bringing up defund, we think there are a couple of approaches to weakening the prison industrial complex. One of them is starving the beast. It is taking the resources out from under it. And so I think that is what um, the analysis of defund is so to this point at the time, we were de demanding a divestment from the, the police officer program, the SRO program, and instead investing more into programming, curriculum, academic support, et cetera, for black and uh, brown students. And then the third was around community control over schools, which again comes from the analysis that we as a community you know, twofold. We as a community don't have any direct power or control over the schools. We have no bill, no no real authority or ability to be able to say, "Hey, um, you know, 
why can't all the black kids read? You're doing something wrong here. Something you know shouldn't be happening. And then forcing or being able to uh, create a change based on that, we didn't have the power to do that. So this had to do with us directly wanting to be able to have that control over this over schooling. And the, the second aspect of that also has to do with being able to create safety for our young people. So well, we wanted to not only remove the police, but we also wanted to end criminalization of our young people. We also wanted to end all different types of violence. And I think for us, that was really important to say as a feminist organization. So we were imagining not only how we were going to stop police from arresting students in school, but we also wanted to address sexual violence in locker rooms. We also wanted to make okay. schools safer for trans and queer kids. We also wanted to stop sexist, racist, racist dress code policies that were targeting Black girls. Um, you know, so we we have some vision around being able to make schools a place of safety and a place of wellness for all of our young people. Right. And, and, and but I'm thinking about, that's, that's very forward looking, but I'm thinking about what I was like when I was a teenager in middle school or in high school. I guess what my... Uh, what the response would be of me and my peers if people came and said to us, let's make some safe spaces for trans people. And so were you able to have that discussion with teenagers and have them take the, uh, take that mantle, have them take that, uh, carry that banner? Yep. So there are a few different approaches we have to that. One, we've been directly working with trans and queer young people, Hmm. right? We don't think that we should bring about that kind of change without the leadership of trans and queer young people at the helm of it saying, this is the way we're gonna go and move it. That's one thing. Two, we've been organizing a long time. I think oftentimes people see mobilizations and think, oh, the movement started here. But we've actually been organizing a very long time, which for us means that we have been building cohorts of young feminist thinkers, right? So of all different genders, girls, boys, queer, trans, who are in place and who are ready and who are leading the work to help their peers become more deeply Black queer feminists, for example, in their thinking. Um, And so, yes, we've been having our young people have these conversations. The other thing is we see this as as an exciting time to invite people into movement. And I say that to say, no, some of the, the young people that we work with, the very the ones that are very new to us, that's not on their agenda. They don't even know if they agree. But we see it as our work as movement builders to engage those young people and for our young people to be engaging with those young people to help bring them along the journey of radical queer feminisms. Yeah. Uh, all right. So it is 2016. Uh, this is on the heels of Michael Brown getting murdered in Ferguson and there's being an uprising there and then Eric Garner in New York and then Sandra Bland in in Texas and Freedom Inc. comes up at Madison and goes to the school board and says, we want you to remove all police from public schools here and you bring a bunch of young people with you. What is the response of the school board? What is the response of the media? What is the response of the general public? to this proposal in 2016, not even in 2020, to remove all cops from schools and have police-free schools? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was rough. So Madison uh, sees itself as, and is perceived as a liberal bastion. And so it sees itself different than some of these bigger cities that people may perceive as more urban. So Madison doesn't think it has the problems of a Chicago, of a New York, or even a Milwaukee. So when we were bringing forth these issues, Madison saw itself exempt, 
right? It was like, we, we empathize, we agree, race is a terrible problem. We wanna have a, a March for Black Lives with the electeds leading, we, we care, right? Like that, that was sort of their postures. We think it's an issue, we care, but we don't think that's happening here, that things are different here. And so in some ways they dismissed us, they laughed us off and then Tony Robinson was murdered and it forced them to look at it differently. And whether or not, now, let me say that, it forced them to look at it differently. It did force them to act differently. It didn't, uh, it didn't even force them to, right. It didn't even force them to agree with our analysis, right? It just, they just all kind of were like, this is bad uh, that this happened. So what we have to do is do what organizers do. We had to build power and confront them and force them to do it. And so that's why we've been organizing diligently for the last four years um, on the campaign, because, you know, if they had already agreed to it, it would have already been in place, but they didn't. Um, and the last thing that I'll say about that is even if they agreed to it quickly, we still saw the need to be building a powerful youth movement because we are not going to realize the vision if we're still the ones out of power. So even if your electeds are really nice and they'll listen to you, that is not the same thing as you having power, right? Mm -hmm. That's you having influence. And that's maybe even you lucking up and having a nice elected, but that is not how we saw our liberation, right? We do not think our relationship, and this is part of what our feminist analysis teaches us, our liberation shouldn't be based on our relationship. Our liberation should not be based on whether you like me today or not. I should be free because I'm free and that is it and that is all. And so we, we have been organizing uh, diligently because we recognize that not only were they disagreeable, but that we were not in a position to implement the vision we saw hmm. or we had. All right. Well, so, so you're organizing young people. You are organizing people in the community in general, and you're confronting power who's not taking this very well, uh, it seems, uh, because they are giving some pushback to the idea of, of police-free schools. And even the idea that uh, in Madison that somehow uh, – Black people are treated the same as they are in Chicago or in other places like that. Uh, 2019, the board, the school board has shifted a little bit. Uh, there's been a, obviously elections between 2014 and 2019. And finally, this thing comes up to vote uh, to the, the contract to, to renew with uh, Madison police comes up to vote. So what happens in 2019 when it comes up to vote? Uh, 2019. And I, I think what you're saying about the school board changing is important uh, so part of what happened is this was the first time that Madison had an all women elected school board. And I think for many people, they thought, oh, we've won. <laughs> we've made it to the promised land uh, <laughs> because of that. And I do think that there is some, um, you know, I understand some of that, right, is, is that I do think that representation can be important, right? So I think to have an all women's board could mean something against patriarchy. However, it's not enough or complete um, in and of its own. And so what happened is not only did we have an all-women board, but we also had more people of color on the board. And so um, then, the, then we also ended up having a board president who was a woman of color, a, Latin, a Latinx woman. Um, and so I think for many people, for Madison, Madison thought it was doing so well uh, <laughs> by this. And so it came to a vote. And again, the, the vote did not go our way. We had um, a few of the votes go, go the way of removing police from schools, but the majority of them did not. And it really had to do with Madison's liberalism, where 
uh, Madison really cares more about, this is like paraphrasing Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but Madison liberals care more about maintaining what they perceive to be law and order than they do about justice. Wow. Um, and so that was despite uh, the murder of Tony Robinson, the continued cases we brought forward about like the mistreatment of Janelle Laird, who was a young black woman who was um, beaten for no reason outside of a mall by a couple of the police officers. That's also this young uh, boy who's a black, young black um, student. He was in high school who had a disability and the police came to his home, like four of them, and they beat him. Uh, and it was caught on camera for no reason while, while he was getting ready to go to a mental health hospital, actually. So despite having all of this footage, all of this documentation, despite the statistics being very clear around the racial disparities, both inside of the school and the broader community, they still decided to maintain their uh, policing their, their position on the, on, the, on the school board contract. Yep. The police. All right. So at this point, Freedom Inc. has invested three years of time, sunk all kinds of money in staff and organizing and other things and brought all kinds of young people onto here. And you take it all the way up to after three years of working on this, you take it all the way up to the school board, finally the vote. And you've been going to the meantime, you go into school board meetings basically every month for three years. And finally, the, the big vote happens and you lose. So like any good organization, you know when it's time to call it and uh, you stop there and the story's over. <laughs> if only it was that simple. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is the end of 2019 and you lose the vote. So what happens? What do you do? And what, uh, what, what happens next? You know, we dust off, right? We, it was emotional, you know? So it did take, um, you know, we spent some time with our folks. We spent some time with our base. Our young people were very hurt. I do think, um, you know, there's that, that, um, that quote that says they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we received. Mm. And that's what happened to our young people. They were very discouraged. They were very hurt. Um, and it was, it was a kick to the morale. I mean, I think for young people to be, and when I say young, you know, some of these leaders joined our campaign at the age of nine. So at this time, they're 12, This was a 13. good chunk of their conscious life. This is like all exactly. they can remember is being on this campaign. Yep. And even though you're black or even though you're Hmong, you know that things are unfair, it is a different thing to go through a political process and experience it. And so they followed the rules. They went to every school board meeting. They told their parents. They registered. They wrote all their speeches out. They posted on Facebook. Like they did all of this sort of, you know, how to plan events, actions, campaigns. And they told school board um, members to their face, the police harass me when I go to school. They told school board, and they're expecting these adults who are responsible for them to care and to to do something yep. about it. Yep, and that's a big deal because, you know, they're survivors. Mm -hmm. And it's a big deal anytime a survivor tells the story of, a, of some sort of harm or trauma done to them, and for them to be young people and do it week in and week out, and... For them to be going, right, for us to be the only ones practically at the meeting. And that's the thing about power. When you have real power, you don't go to those meetings, right? So it's just us. And it felt like, you know, this clean. And so I'm saying all of that to say we did take some time to spend with our young people to affirm them and then to ready them, right, to dust off and to get back out there. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what they did. We celebrated them. We honored them. We claimed our victory, our victory was our organizing. Our victory was turning out more leaders. Our victory in the amount of people we got to know. Our victory was in how we made policing 
a central issue in every elected campaign and every um, elected officials races since uh, we started the campaign. So mm. we really counted the things that we um, that we won, that we feel like we won, and then we and then we blamed the empire, right, for the failure of um, not delivering the vote. It wasn't us, right? It's, it's the empire that kept cops in school. So then we went back out there and we kept organizing. Then we got back out there and we kept organizing. And then something happened, Max. COVID-19 hit early in 2020. Mm-hmm. And many people, uh, I think many organizations took a pause. We did not. We did not. Freedom actually revved up. We revved up because we are people who... Um, we're frontline in our communities, right? We're front lines when it comes to confronting and ending sexual violence, domestic violence, and a host of other forms of violence that happen inside of our community and when our communities are in crisis. So uh, we revved up. We were delivering food inside of neighborhoods. We were knocking on doors. We were beginning to create mutual aid infrastructure. We were delivering news. We were teaching people how to be safe, right? So we revved up. And because we were on the ground and revved up, I knew, and I don't have to say this on the record, this is a recording, I knew we were at the precipice of a mass mobilization. I remember talking to you about this, Max. I knew it. I said, look, pandemics, right, like Dr. Roy says, pandemics are portals. We're on the edge of something. And then before you know it, and this is unfortunate that it came at the expense of Black life, um, again, but George Floyd was murdered. And that tipped it. And folks went into the streets. They say the number is 26 million, right? 26 million people went into the streets. Freedom Inc. went into the streets in Madison. And we stayed in the streets mobilizing tens of thousands of people um, into action. And we kept fighting and demanding the end of police and schools. And then finally, uh, we won. And so they had to reopen, basically, the contract that they just renewed in 2019 by just a few months later in 2020 because of this national wave and because you continued to organize and continue with the pressure. They basically had to reverse themselves just a few months later. Mm-hmm. That is incredible and and um, really inspiring to hear uh, that that happened. So the I guess, guess the other question to come back to some of the first thing we talk about is do, did the black youth and the Southeast Asian youth experience that campaign in particular, and then also just experience police and schools in the same way, or were there also wildly different experiences like they were in the beginning of the organization? Um, yes and no. So I do think that, and we've done a lot of work around this in our organization to understand anti-blackness in particular. So both communities experience and are targeted by white supremacy. So in some ways they experience it, right? Like, and uh, some of our leaders talk about this, right? With Southeast Asian people, when they were brought here to the United States, they were put into poor communities. And who's in the poor communities? Us, right? And so if you're put inside of Black communities, then you do experience some of the policing, right? It's not targeted at you, but you experience some of it. And so some of them talk about um, having uncles or having brothers or whoever, other members of the community having been locked up for petty drug offenses, similar to what happens to uh, Black communities, not in the same rate or scale, but experiencing those things because they're in the same communities. One of the things that um, our Southeast Asian leadership was able to do, which I think is just so smart, and what we actually want to see in movement is they didn't try to be like, it's, it's the same. Police are, you know, 
like the the young I forget her name, but the young woman I think it was Charlotte um, a few years ago where the video went viral and the police officer like slammed the young black girl in the chair and like drug her the halls there they were like that didn't happen to us right we know that that didn't happen to us but they were able to say because we we are very intentional about asking the questions how are you being impacted where where are you located in this they were able to say the way that policing more broadly impacts them Hmm. and so some of the things that they did talk about and were able to make the connection on is the role of policing and its relationship to ice right and they were able to to the immigration service Yep, they were able to say to the broader progressive community, how can you be in support of us saying no ICE should come to school because the school board did say that they were not going to cooperate with ICE, but then at the same time cooperate with the police. So those sorts of things I thought uh, were really impactful in the campaign, were really sharp in the campaign. Oh, Very okay. interesting. So do you have to, to, to then go through a process of getting the Southeast Asian members to think about the domestic police in a particular way, but then also getting the black members to think about ICE or immigration in a, the immigration police in a particular way? Yep. Yep. We were doing the work on both sides. Wow. Yeah, we okay. absolutely do the work on both sides. All right. So what's and let next? Let me say that. We did the work on both sides and there were black refugee immigrant folks as part of this work as Who well. We could see both. Yeah, who could see both and who I think made all of us more sharper as a result. Mm. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, So what is next for Freedom Inc.? What's your next campaign? What's your next big idea? What's the expansion of the community control campaign? Yeah. So we are still um, inside of that police-free schools. We won the demand around canceling the contract and getting police out. We also have had some small gains and wins in terms of shifting resources to be invested into the leadership, dignity, creativity, and academics of Black youth, Black and brown youth. But we still have a way to go on community control. And what's interesting is the pandemic really revealed, and I think it's very revealing to many people around education and calling many and getting many people, parents in particular, I think young people as well, but right now I'm speaking about parents to sort of question what the hell was happening in these schools. Right. <laughs> and right. so I think right now a lot of things have opened up for us. So we're actually experimenting with alternatives. So if the schools are not there, what then do we build in our neighborhood? Uh-huh. What then do we build as, as a community in places? So we're experimenting with like trying to figure out little reading hubs and tutoring sites. We're experimenting with trying to think through complex questions of like, where do people physically go if you don't have childcare? You know, so we're really trying to experiment in our communities with this mutual aid um, structure, as well as like the political structures to how we really meet our needs in a deep way. And so I don't know what campaign to call that exactly, mm-hmm. but we're really in the alternative space right now where people can see the failures of government. Some of the other things that are being revealed is people I think in general are fundamentally questioning three important areas. One, people are questioning policing, right? What is the purpose of it? What is the function of policing, right? Cops can't kill COVID. People are dying from COVID, but this is the most funded thing. I think that's very illustrated to Black communities. They're like, we're sick, but we can't we can't get no health care, but we can get a cop at the door. So people are questioning that. Mm. Two, I think people are questioning government. People are saying, what is the function of government? What is the point of having all of this structure, infrastructure, 
resources into it if I can't be helped, right? I think people are really feeling abandoned and have felt, felt abandoned by the Trump administration and not actually support it. And so people are saying, what's the point of it? If it, if it is not to help us, then what is it for, right? Um, and so similarly around the election and some of the other things, especially in Wisconsin, where we were forced to vote in person in April, at, you know, at, at one of the heights of uh, COVID under extreme voter suppression. The third thing that I think people are really thinking about is housing, right? Why am I facing eviction during a pandemic, right? I think the pandemic is really helping people. I don't want to say help when I talk about the pandemic, but it's really causing people to see how little we actually control mm-hmm. and how much we should be controlling. And so the pandemic is causing people to see, look, I lost this job for no fault of my own, right? And it's happening to everybody. So they can't just say it's me, right? right. Uh, like neoliberalism. Not do anything I did. I didn't fail right. to show up for work or anything like that. Exactly. And, and so often, right, layoffs during neoliberalism don't allow people to see that because the narrative is that the individual is blamed. But here it's so clear that it's this pandemic that's sweeping across the country. And then people are saying, if these things are happening to me, not just me and they're not my fault, why should I be evicted? Why should I be kicked out? And I think people, I think we have a ripe opportunity to start fighting for community control over land again. When we organize our survivors in gender justice, housing tends to be at the top of the list. People are facing evictions. Mm-hmm. People don't have anywhere to go, and people want to stay where they at, where they are at. All right, very insightful. And I think uh, if 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 your previous campaign took three years to mature, and now we're seeing a lot of other uh, parts of the social justice movement catching up, then, then maybe you're giving us some insight now as to what's going to happen next uh, over the next three to five years. Uh, so, so we'll see. Uh, we are out of time here. I want to thank uh, you, M. Adams. Uh, from Freedom Inc. for joining you. And as you know, you're one of my favorite people, favorite organizers for full disclosure. You and I are finishing up this book on community control over police. And we always have so much to talk about. I'm just so sorry we're out of time, mainly because I still have a list of other questions, though they're mainly uh, gotcha questions and embarrassing, <laughs> scurrilous uh, personal accusations and some of your quotes taken completely out of context. So maybe we'll get you on next time <laughs> to do that. But thank you so much for joining us. I thank you. I appreciate you. Okay, that's our show. Thank you for listening to The Next World. I'm Max Rameau. You can find out more about my work at pacapower.org. That's P-A-C-A power.org. You can read more in depth on many of the issues we talked about today on the Partners for Dignity and Rights website, dignityandrights.org. We'll be back with another episode of The Next World soon. Until then, please tell your friends about us and help spread the word about this podcast. Goodbye for now. And remember, organize, organize, organize. Organize.